Shelley Duvall. Welcome to Fairy Tale Theater. Tonight's tale takes us not to a land far, far away, but to America's Catskill Mountains, the setting for Washington Irving's mysterious classic about a peaceful fairy tale hero who liked to sleep. Rip Van Winkle. Hello, and welcome to the Director's Wall podcast, season two. Coppola cast. I'm one of your co-hosts, AJ Gonzalez. And I'm the other host, Brian Connolly. All right. And if it sounds different, uh, it's because we are together again <laughs> in the same room. I know. It's been so long, but we're both yeah. fully vaccinated and we felt like, why not go yeah. back to reality of being in life person real life person this is like who live it leads this is going to be like exciting for people to just be like oh this is what it's like live yeah. being the, right there in the moment <laughs> so uh so which means that we have not i have not used this microphone in over a year i think i figured it out uh it sounded okay when we tested it so uh if it sounds a bit weird we'll we'll, we'll work learn. it out <laughs> we'll get back into it yeah <laughs> Yeah, uh, so before we get into the show, as always, we like to promote a Francis Coppola wine, and we have one that we actually haven't done yet, and this is the Francis Coppola Diamond Collection Zinfandel 2017. Uh, as always, it has a little write-up on like what you should eat with it, so let's, let's, let's read that. Dramatic style, vibrant packaging, very true, it's like got a nice sort of maroon label, um, and fruit forward, smooth wines are the signatures of Francis Coppola Diamond Collection. Our Zinfandel bestows supple tannins and lush, jammy flavors of berries, cherries, and plums, along with spicy oak and notes of pepper and anise. Enjoy with barbecued spare ribs or spicy lentil stew. It is very specific. You know, so if you're out there having a spicy lentil stew tonight, please grab the Coppola Zinfandel Diamond Collection. I love it because I feel like now they, they, they feel like they need to throw in one vegetarian meal to, like, appeal to, like, like not everyone's going to be eating spare ribs, but, you know, spicy lentil stew. That's a very specific <laughs> type of food. Yeah. <laughs> uh, this wine's good. Very good. It's not very uh, strong. Or mm. uh, bold for a red. But I like that's what I like about it. It's very smooth. I mean, this is 2017, so it's had a few years aged, so it has that kind of nice aged wine smoothness. If that's a thing, I don't know. I'm no expert. Uh, mm. Yeah, it's the it's got the kind of smoothness where uh, you could drink it on its own as we are without uh, spare ribs or spicy lentil stew, or spicy lentil soup to kind of <laughs> take the edge off the wine take the edge off the red which i feel like happens like there's a symbiotic thing where yeah. the red like makes the meat or whatever pop but then the meat then also takes the edge off of the red because mm -hmm. the reds are so like bold and strong on the tongue when you uh, drink them on their own but there's no edge on this i feel this might be a good red wine for people who don't think they like red wine maybe yeah i would recommend it for that Good job. All right. <laughs> so today we're having a little weird special episode where we're not covering one, we're not covering two, but three 
Francis Coppola movies, but that's because this is all shorts. We're sort of doing he a bunch of he did a bunch of weird shorts in the middle of the eighties, uh, possibly to just make more money to pay off his insane debt, or because it was just fun and he was getting a little older and wanted to do something less uh, big and crazy. And all three of these things are other people's projects, basically that he kind of is given or walks into. Um, much, I guess, like how Picky Sue got married. We talked about how that was originally for Jonathan Demme, and then it worked its way to Coppola. So he's kind of still doing that, but as we'll talk about it, still making very interesting, not the normal type of stuff. So <laughs> I guess we will talk about first, we're kind of going out of order because we want to end with the one we're most excited to talk about. So first, we're going to talk about this show called Fairy Tale Theater. That he directed an episode of in 1987. So, for those of you who are not familiar with Fairy Tale Theater, it was a show produced and hosted by Shelley Duvall for children, where they did this shot on video, um, really homemade in a way, in terms of just like the art direction and costume, sort of these these little plays almost for children and definitely also for grown-ups because she let. I'm assuming she it was sort of her choice interesting actors and filmmakers to kind of make these fairy tales come alive and coppola's picked rip van winkle or he was given rip van winkle um did you watch fairy tale theater as a kid i watched it a lot i didn't watch it a lot um but i was familiar with it like to me shelly duvall was the fairy tale lady like she wasn't even uh olive oil uh she was the fairy tale lady and uh, yeah, I rem- so I remember that I have that association with her, but I don't specifically remember any of these episodes. I was able to get a hold of a DVD with uh, four episodes on there, and like the style, the tone felt familiar, <laughs> but I couldn't. I had no memory of these because what episode did you watch? The other episodes I watched. Uh, I watched the uh, Aladdin. Aladdin and His Lamp, which was directed by Tim Burton. Oh, that's right. Can Tim, you tell it was directed by Tim Burton? Not really. Interesting. Um, it, that one stars Robert Carradine as Aladdin and <laughs> James Earl Jones as the genie. Nice. I remember the Pinocchio with Pee Wee Herman as Pio Pinocchio being one I really liked as a kid. And then also there was one... It was either called the Snow... I think it was called the Snow Queen or the Ice Princess. It was one of those two. And I remember the being... Snow, the Snow Queen is, is the a Snow Queen? fairy tale that yeah. some Frozen is based yeah. on. And I remember being insanely disturbed by it as a child. There was something about the imagery that just was upsetting to me. And then there was a really good Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. I remember me and my brothers loving a lot. Um, and Tony Cox plays one of the sassy dwarves. And it's really good. Um, but... It's a weird show. It's it definitely feels kind of, kind of dreamy, kind of trippy. Not quite for children, um, and because it, it's shot on video, it just has this kind of weird intimacy to it that like you don't get from Disney things necessarily. Um, yeah, and uh, Shelley Duvall, since it's Showtime, and Shelley Duvall was able to get her friends <laughs> to come. <laughs> do the show uh and they were able to get their friends so the cast the talent is like 
crazy. Is crazy. <laughs> well, the cast of this one is maybe the craziest. I don't know if it's because Coppola pulled in the talent. But uh, I guess before we get into it, let's have a little bit of plot for those who maybe don't know the story. Washington Irving's Rip Van Winkle, the guy who also wrote The Legend of Sleepy Hollow. Is it your turn to do plot? Who did Peggy Sue Got Married? I feel like it was me. Yeah, I think it was. Okay, so can you do the plot? Uh, yeah, <laughs> sure. I'll, it'll either be really quick or four <laughs> hours long. Uh, so uh, Rip Van Winkle is played by Harry Dean Stanton. He's uh, n- not lively enough to be a happy-go-lucky kind of guy, but he's just uh, living his life in... Uh, like pre-revolutionary upstate New York in the Catskills and his wife is Talia Shire and she's really frustrated with him just like lazing around all the time his neighbors are like Ed Bagley Jr. (laughs) and Chris Penn (laughs) and uh, someone Glenn Winthrow from uh, Rumblefish and the Outsiders uh, Tim Conway is a guy talking up, uh, uh, talking out against the uh, the taxes from the king, and we just follow Rip throughout his day, like trying to get a ladder back, and he wanders off into the woods with his dog named Wolf, and then meets some. Now this I don't remember as a kid, so maybe I've never read this story. He meets some ghosts or like mystical beings that are like lost sailors and they get him drunk and then he falls asleep for like 20 years wakes up and uh colonial new york is now the state of new york part of the new united states of america and he has been asleep so long he doesn't really remember who he is and so uh He's got the super long beard. No one remembers who he is. And everyone thinks that he's like a spy or a traitor because he's like, what? Like, you're talking against the king. (laughs) Uh, But then finally, someone is old enough to remember him. And he meets his son, who's played by Harry Dean Stanton. (laughs) A young. Young Harry Dean Stanton. I guess young. And then he becomes like a lovable old figure and tells the children of the village his story and how things were in the long ago time. And the whole thing is narrated by one of the ghosts. Yeah. Who's like pulls a dusty old book and he's like, and I rip Van Winkle's tail like should not be forgotten, (laughs) which is why I visit this town every (laughs) 20 years. And that's John P. Ryan playing the uh yeah the narrator he's got a ghost. deep like good spooky narrating voice <laughs> he also plays one of the ghosts <laughs> yeah i i like him he's uh he was the star of it's alive if you've ever seen it's alive the killer baby movie he is the dad of the killer baby um but uh, yeah a good a good narrator <laughs> um and yeah that I mean that's a crazy cast you just said there like of course, we have Harry Dean Stanton with Coppola again. I believe their last collaboration. Yes, yeah, as far I, as I, I know. I think. But we saw him before in One from the Heart and Godfather 2. And so, like, he's definitely, like, this is them together. And for the first time ever, he's the star. <laughs> he's the star of this with Coppola. Uh, but that supporting cast is crazy. It's like, yeah, okay, you can accept an Ed Begley Jr. or Tim Conway. But 
uh, Chris Penn is like a weird. <laughs> the weird that's choice. a weird choice. You're like, because like he should have been in Rumblefish. He should have been the Outsiders, not in those movies. But he's gonna show up in <laughs> Rip Van Winkle. Mm-hmm. Sure, why not? <laughs> and it's uh, it's very odd to see him. And then the, of course it makes sense that Talia Shire's in there just because of the you know she's related and and music by Carmine Coppola. Yeah, yeah. It's, it has a very classic sort of soundtrack. Or I guess Chris Penn is in Rumblefish. But uh, it's funny to see him also here just wearing a big hat and just sort of like doing, I guess, comedy as one of the townsfolk just hanging out on the porch, just pontificating about like, you know, taxes, taxes. And, and <laughs> yeah. but it's a, it definitely feels very Coppola. Like it makes sense that he was drawn to this or was given it and accepted it because it has that kind of artifice, that old Hollywood feel that he tried to do in One from the Heart or even like the sunset sequence in, in The Outsiders. Um, it has, like, a lot of just amazing, you know, intentionally not realistic-looking sets and matte paintings and kind of, I guess, rear projection or early blue screen, some weird backgrounds that don't look like they're there or they look like miniatures blown up. So I was so excited to see this name because I feel like now it is complete... Uh, in the art department, the artistic concept by Ioku Ishioka, who is the costume designer for Francis Ford Coppola's Ram Stoker's Dracula. There you go. Is this when they first got together? Yes. Uh, so she had previously done uh, production design and costumes for, uh, I'm going to say it wrong, probably Mishima. That seems right. Uh, the biopic about the Japanese author, which I think was directed by Paul Schrader. Correct, yes. And so he hired her to do our, like artistic concept because there's a crew in place already for fairy tale theater. So like it's not shot by anyone that uh, Coppola has worked with before and someone else does the costumes and uh, actual production design. But Ioku Ishioka, like, came, like, in, invented the look, the style of it, and then the fairy tale theater crew executed it. But, uh, yeah, thinking how, like, low t- the best visuals in Dracula, without getting too far ahead, are how, like, low tech and old school it is and there's lots of low tech like intentionally arti- uh, artificial looking effects here like there is the mountains of the Catskills are like a blanket or a carpet that was draped over like five people and they would shift around so the mountains would shift depending on the scene <laughs> or the moods of the characters yeah, it looks like it's breathing almost, which makes sense that there's yeah. people under there. And when the uh, ghost is telling the story of how him and his crew got lost at sea, yeah, it's a little boat on a blanket that's just being shook. And it's obviously <laughs> a blanket that's just yeah. being shaken, and it works. It really like, works. It's for yeah. kids, but it's surreal. Yeah. And it's a little scary, This the sequence with the, the ghosts. Things that goes, and I really the one that stood up for me was the fishing sequence where there's someone dressed up as a fish running through this kind of fake creek, 
that part's really weird. Like this definitely fits to me more into that rain people. So like this is like this is arty. This is art student Coppola. Like this is a type of thing that like if he hadn't made The Godfather and he but he'd made something like this in the seventies even you'd be like oh this makes total sense that this is the guy who did. Uh, you know, like the rain people would then go on to make like this weird thing for children in his weird way. Um, much like how Popeye feels like a weird kids movie from Altman. This feels like a weird kids thing and it's actually successful one. I think he, when we talk about New York stories in a few episodes, he will try to do a thing for kids there that isn't quite as successful, but this definitely is sort of like that, you know, like Finian's rainbow, uh, kind of fantasy you know dreamy coppola or even parts of apocalypse now if you will like it's just like him sneaking art into places where you don't expect it and uh but also yeah like one from the heart in that kind of like embracing the fakeness of being on a set and being indoors and pretending basically making big make-believe like this is his version of mr rogers neighborhood basically like it's just like full-on make-believe not even trying to be real but being just very, very creative. That was uh, one thing. That was stuff that he really enjoyed about uh, making this episode, the fairy tale theater, was since the budget was low, but he he had these constraints, but he had freedom within the constraints, and it reminded him of working on like the Rain People, a sort of experimental film that they made up as they went. And you definitely get that vibe mm-hmm. from this. Um. Yeah. Like, and it, it makes sense that, like, this is soon after uh, Peggy Sue got married. It's like him still trying to do this, like, version of a fairy tale. Like, this is an actual version of a fairy tale. And he also will go into this again. Like, Jack, in a way, also feels like this sort of world that he constantly will go into between his prestige movies, you know, successful or not. He always kind of likes to go back to this sort of, like, dreamy fairy tale kind of fantasy sort of thing that he's attracted to you know clearly um yeah but it it was totally effective and great and maybe maybe this is the best fairy tale theater episode like i haven't seen them all since i was a child but this definitely has the stamp of coppola like and it has it just it works on its own like you don't have to see the other episodes and you just watch this 45 minutes and you're like what an interesting little movie that he made um yeah it does work on its own and you can tell that um the directors were given whatever kind of uh freedom that they they wanted or they were allowed to put their stamp on it because he obviously does and in the tim burton episode aladdin i mean there's a lot of like fantasy and some cool imagery especially with the flying carpet and the genie uh but looking at it you wouldn't think that it was directed by tim burton who has a very distinct visual style like even in something like big fish or planet of the apes you're like oh there's the tim burton imagery uh but yeah there wasn't any i wonder if he was just trying to play it safe because it was early in his career or something and he just it was just like a job to him because that might have been before even Pee-wee's Big Adventure, which was 86, or around the same time. So maybe he was just trying to 
get paid and make sure that he did the job. Whereas Coppola had nothing to lose at this point. He doesn't care. (laughs) (laughs) Like, he's still, like, this is still, like, this whole episode is still kind of in the middle of that era of him supposedly just trying to make all this money back that he lost from the failure of Zoetrope and one from the heart. But we still keep seeing him making interesting choices and doing yet again interesting things and not just like he could have easily phoned in a Rip Van Winkle and made a more straightforward thing but it has this kind of overall you know creative you know know, very interesting thing going on here Uh, I guess the only other thing I want to say about this is the way Coppola came to direct it is that the show had been on for a while and young Sofia Coppola got hired to act in an episode uh, on her own. I think the episode's called The Princess That Never Laughed. Hmm. And when he went to like drop her off, uh, Shelley Duvall like, pulled him aside <laughs> and was like, so like I've been trying to get a hold of you to direct uh, one of these episodes. And so yeah, then he got offered, like picked or assigned Rip Van Winkle, which is the only American fairy tale in the whole show. They're all set in yep. a faraway land yeah. or in Europe or more grim uh, Middle East yeah, type uh, stuff. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. No, it's really good. It made me definitely want to go back and watch more of this show just because I had, I used to love this show as a kid so much. And uh, it's funny when I saw The Hobbit, the Peter Jackson Hobbit on whatever that fancy frame rate was mm-hmm. that they sh- he shot it on and everyone hated it. I loved it because it, to me it made it look more like an episode of Fairytale Theater because <laughs> I saw it projected at that, that crazy frame rate and it has this sort of hyper video look to it and it made the sets kind of look cheaper and the costumes look a little cheaper but I liked that because I was like, oh, this feels like a fairy tale theater episode of The Hobbit. This is great. <laughs> so I'm sure that was not at all his intention but... <laughs> That's why I'm the one person who likes those movies, and nobody else does. So it just had that fairy tale theater uh, aesthetic accidentally. Um, <laughs> yeah, now this is great. I wonder why uh, Shelley Duvall never asked uh, Stanley Kubrick to do an episode of <laughs> fairy tale theater. But I definitely, if you can find it anywhere, there is a DVD set of all the episodes. We were able to. I was able to find this on YouTube. Someone does have it on YouTube, so. Watch it there while you can. The full box set is sadly out of print. Oh, man. Uh, but individual episodes have been packaged together and are available to purchase. So it's like all the Hans Christian Andersen hmm. fairy tales or all like the Grimm's fairy tales. How weird. Like, you know, four or five episodes per DVD. So they're available that way. I couldn't find them to stream in any of the places I go to. They're probably out there. Hopefully, it'll be become available more widely available. Maybe that box set, some nice Blu-ray that set, box or set'll come back. Shout Factory, get on that <laughs> for real. It's great. <laughs> Here to tell you how the world is wrong. The world is wrong about Mad Dog Time, the Paperboy, Mordecai, after last season. The World is Wrong is an extremely positive podcast where Andras Jones and Brian Connolly champion films The World is Wrong About. 
Available on Paper House Network, wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs> I guess we can move on to the next. And all three of these things we're talking about are all very different, which is which is interesting. That's why I was really excited to go through this. So now we go to an episode of Saturday Night Live from season 11. This is March 22nd, 1986. So for those of you unfamiliar with season 11, this was, I believe, uh, was this when Lorne Michaels came back? Was this like right when he came back? Or? This was right when he came back. Yeah. And this may have yeah. been like, if not the very episode he came back, like <laughs> a few episodes afterwards. Because he, you know, ran the first five years, then he left, and then there was Notorious... Saturday Night Dead year where they fired everyone in like 1980, 81. And then they had a bunch of hits with a different showrunner with when Eddie Murphy was on there through the 80s. Then you had an interesting year where it was like Billy Crystal and Martin Short and Christopher Guest and Harry Shearer. And that was very popular. Then those guys left. And then Lorne Michaels came back. I don't know if they were trying to go for like the youth market or what it was, but it's a very, it's an interesting cast because a lot of people who have already who were already actors in movies at the time, but they just kind of got thrown into SNL. So you have Robert Downey Jr., Joan Cusack, Anthony Michael Hall, who at the time was the youngest cast member to ever be cast in SNL at age 17, Randy Quaid, <laughs> and then you have uh, Dennis Miller, John Lovett, and Nora Dunn, who of course went on to actually have thriving uh, SNL careers. Then you have um, Terry Sweeney, who was the first openly gay cast member, and he would do an amazing uh, Nancy Reagan. And then Denitra Vance, who was the first African-American woman to be a featured cast member. So kind of like, in a way, a very progressive season, but it was not a very popular season because it was just so strange. And this is Lorne Michaels coming back, and you don't really have an Eddie Murphy or a big star, uh, you know. And, yeah, it's just very weird to see this group of people, like, yeah, you're a big Robert Downey Jr. fan. Have you watched him do sketch comedy on Saturday Night Live? It is a weird experience. And same with Joan Cusack. Like, I love Joan Cusack. And seeing her do, like, a Weekend Update bit is actually really f- exciting. Like, I have always wondered about this season. This is season 11. And because, uh, like, right after this season, most of these people were let go. And then you get into like the next wave of classic. Basically, season twelve is like Phil Hartman and Dana Carvey and Victoria Jackson and Kevin Nealon and like soon Mike Myers and like it gets into like the next wave of like when it, be- it was a hit and we all loved it again. But I always heard or assumed that the season was terrible. I gotta say, I really liked this episode and thought it was really funny. Uh, I thought it was great. I really liked. There's a good. Well, we'll get into kind of the big arc, but like. Joan Cusick has a great bit talking about that Out of Africa wasn't funny. And that's a really good bit. <laughs> There's a weird, like, Samuel Beckett type thing where Robert Downey Jr. and Joan Cusick are in suitcases and they're talking to each other on stage. It's very weird. It doesn't, it's just, it's very strange. The musical guest was Philip Glass, which is interesting. <laughs> and then the host, I guess the host, was George Went, uh, kind of on like cheers being really popular here but he's barely in it and really the 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 show is more about francis coppola because it takes on this weird plot and i don't know if there's any other snl that has a plot but this kind of has a story where it's he is 
they need to like bring him in to direct. I don't remember why he's there to direct it, but like this episode of SNL is directed by Francis Ford Coppola, and so then it has like a pretentious opening credits. George Went comes out and gives his monologue. You hear Coppola go cut, 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 and you see him on like those big, like director chair lift crane things. Yeah, like he's sitting on the edge of the crane. <laughs> and he comes down and he makes George Went do it again. He's like, I didn't believe it. I do it again. And he and it's and this joke basically runs through the entire episode where you'll have a weekend update or a skit and a couple will come in and yell cut and make them redo it or redo it. So it gets this weird sort of like gets into this weird meta surreal place. They make fun of the pronunciation of his name. They, they call him Coppola and he's like, no, no, it's Coppola. But then he refers to Ted Coppola as Ted Coppola. And there's all these weird <laughs> little Coppola jokes. There's definitely lots of jokes about, Rumblefish being not good and a failure, even though that movie's great. <laughs> uh, there's uh, Robert Downey makes a joke about, in a skit, he talks about being a caterer in the Cotton Club. Um, it's a weird, it's a very weird episode. It's very, very strange. And I don't know if he had anything to do with the set, Coppola, but like it has this weird kind of fake Times Square set that, again, feels sort of like one from the heart. Maybe that was just a set for this season of SNL. And then it has this strange... At the end, it has this weird thing that almost feels like out of a Wes Anderson movie where it goes from one set to the other and you're seeing all the people in the show in this kind of big sort of musical number where it's like going for, showing you all the separate stages with skits we didn't even see. Maybe they were cut out of the version we saw. But it just kind of does this interesting sort of arty, you know, move around all of, uh, you know, the studio um coppola didn't actually direct this episode i don't think but they but he is the character of the director through the entirety of the show i didn't like this episode (laughs) or this snl cast season as much as you did i was too but i was too weirded out by the whole thing (laughs) it's like what is this it kind of reminded me of like they were trying to do like an episode of SCTV yeah where those episodes would have themes yeah and this episode has a theme like a strong recurring theme that they like commit to yeah and uh what's available uh we saw this or I saw this on Peacock uh which is free you have to make an account but it's free uh, and it's been edited down to like 30 minutes. So like there, there's no, no Philip Glass. No Philip Glass. Apparently there were clips from. Koinoskoski yes, or one that's of those. It. Yeah. I, I've already mispronounced <laughs> names enough. <laughs> uh, yeah. Clips from that, which we don't get to see licensing reasons, I guess. But then also there was an SNL episode with clips from Koinoskoski. <laughs> yeah. What? Uh, and the jokes. I feel like this episode and would probably be true of the other episodes in this season, which I have seen a few, at least, on random reruns on my local NBC affiliate. Saturday nights after Saturday Night, Saturday Night Live would end, they would show a rerun. And that's how I saw a lot of the classic uh, you know, Dan Aykroyd, Belushi, Bill Murray episodes. And then all of a sudden... There was this weird season. Like, what the <laughs> hell is this? <laughs> I think this has to be the weirdest season the show's ever had. Like, there's less funny seasons, or there's like that weird season where it was 
Michael McKeon and Chris Elliott and Janine Garofalo in 95 or 94. But this seems weirder because this cast is like, these are people from the Brat Pack. Like these are people that were already the stars of like John Hughes movies. And now they're in New York doing sketch comedy, like in the Michael Hall. It doesn't quite fit. It doesn't quite work. But I find it very fascinating. Like this might be the most interesting season of Saturday Night Live in terms of just looking back and being like, what did they do? Like, wait, what did they do that year? It's like Tim and Eric wish they made something like this. <laughs> um, see, so uh, yeah, my problem is I feel like the show is is underwritten. Like these are all good performers, but with the exception of like John Lovitz and Nora Dunn, uh, and I guess Dennis Miller, but he's a different kind of comedian than them. Uh, these are actors. Like if you give them the script, they will do it and they'll do the hell out of it. But if something is missing there, they can't like <laughs> improv in the moment though. Lorne Michaels does not like to improv in the moment, but uh like just play off of the energy of the other person and bring the bring this sketch to life like the the suitcase skit which i loved but was kind of disappointed by where (laughs) randy quaid brings out robert downey jr who's like curled up inside his suitcase with his head poking out and he puts him down and robert downey jr is now gonna deliver what he calls like a 30 minute assault yeah confrontational monologue yeah (laughs) (laughs) and he starts like doing this and he's making these weird faces as he's struggling in a suitcase and then randy quaid brings out joan cusack (laughs) and puts her down and she doesn't really say much of anything but that's the gag she's just like there and (laughs) downey jr is like what are you doing joan what are you doing she's like "Mm, like well i just thought like that uh, i could do i could do this this thing this bit and he's like, so on the very night, which I decide to have my 30-minute confrontational monologue, you decide to put yourself in a suitcase and have Randy bring you out and do the exact same thing I'm doing, except 20 inches to the left. <laughs> and they're good, and it's good, it's enjoyable, but I feel like it could have been better if it had been better written or if they were... You could definitely they had like workshopped it more. You can definitely tell when watching this episode that like the the real star of this whole episode is John Lovitz. Like he, it's working for him the most, which makes sense that he would continue. And it's strangely very young looking John Lovitz. I never thought he would look young in anything, but he looks like a guy in his twenties. Like it, you mentioned, John Lovitz going, but you get his classic like liar character right mm-hmm. off the bat. The yeah, that's the ticket. Like he's already. Fully formed John Lovitz here, like 13 episodes in. Yeah, Coppola is <laughs> giving someone direction, and then they have to go to commercial, and he's upset they have to go to commercial. And he brings out Lorne Michaels, and like, I was told that there'd be no interruptions. Like, this is my artistic vision, and there's no interruptions. He's really playing into, like, you know, pretentious director. Yeah. And he's like, well, who told you there'd be no commercials? We have to have commercials. Like, well, the president of the network. And then John Lovitz comes out as the liar. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's the ticket. <laughs> and he's great. And, of course, the Dennis Miller Weekend Update is, like, already, like, classic Dennis Miller, like, obscure references, jackassery that he was so good at. Yeah. And I, Nor- I miss that kind of Weekend Update. Just, the, like, yeah. he'll, like, he'll show a picture and then just give a funny quote <laughs> to a funny caption. But it is interesting because, like, Robert Downey Jr., Joan Cusack, and Randy Quaid, 
and Anthony Michael are good actors. Like they are good actors. So it is, maybe it doesn't quite work. Maybe it's not quite the funniest, but it is very interesting. If you have any interest in those people at all, in any level to watch them do to be dropped in the world of Saturday Night Live is very, it is unsettling, <laughs> but it's also very fascinating. Yeah, like, I could understand it's, why you'd want to have Joan Cusack on your, uh, on your sketch show to fill the uh, the role of the crazy lady <laughs> of like Gilda Radner, uh, yeah. Kristen Wiig, like a pre Molly Shannon. Shannon. Yeah, it to- yeah. she totally I think could work there. Yeah, and her bit uh, that she does on Weekend Update where she talks about how uh, out of Africa isn't funny. Like now, <laughs> Midnight Cowboy, that's funny. Really reminded me of uh, Gilda Radner doing. Uh, uh, like Roseanne, Nadana, Nadana, yeah, uh, coming out making a a screed about something that doesn't make any sense. But Joan Cusack's not doing a character, and I didn't. Really... It's just her doing Joan Cusack, basically. Yeah, I didn't really like the the bit, so I felt like if she was given a character, you know, she would have played the hell out of it as she always does in everything, and that's why she is a treasure. <laughs> So George Went is barely in this. He tries to really make this uh, bit about uh, being a fish salesman stuck with a big <laughs> whale. Like he accidentally, or his son, played by Anthony Michael Hall, who's I think it's the only skit that we see him in, mm-hmm. or sketch. I'm sorry, apparently that's a point of contention with the uh, sketch world. <laughs> it's sketches, not skits. What's uh, the difference? <laughs> You get paid for one? <laughs> um, yeah, his son accidentally ordered, like, uh, a whale. And so there's, like, a big sperm whale in his store, and he's trying to unload all of it. And so any everyone that comes in, he's trying to sell them the whale. And he sells uh, Denitra Vance, like, something like, oh, no, no, you, you want 10 pounds. You want 10 pounds of whale. And whatever the kids don't eat, you can melt down and use for candles. <laughs> uh, Al Franken has a cameo at the end. He was a, a producer this season, I guess. Where is he at the end? I've missed it. Uh, the missed fin- it. After the finale, it ends with George Went. George Went has, like, left oh, that's the right. studio. And he goes, and he goes to yeah, a bar. Yeah. And Al Franken and uh tom davis Mm -hmm. also a producer this season are the bartenders and they say like oh you know it was an all right show and uh george went says yeah but i was like barely in it and they say (laughs) they say like well like how do you think we feel like we're the producers and we didn't get to be in it at all (laughs) it's a weird episode it feels like i don't think they've ever done an episode like this where it just feels like a weird idea a weird concept and sticking with that concept the whole thing i don't think the one michaels would ever dare to try to do something like this again and i like i liked that about it. i liked that it was like a weird take on standard life and you're right it is very much like sctv like how sctv would kind of jump back and forth between the sketches and the behind the scenes like the sctv for anyone who hasn't seen it it's amazing if you love Catherine O'Hara or Eugene Levy from Schitt's Creek, this is like them in their prime as young, brilliant sketch artists. 
uh, John Candy, you know, Dave Joe Flaherty, Thomas, Dave Thomas, Rick Andrea Maranis, Martin. It's it's so good. The best Canadians. The best of Canadian of Canada. <laughs> but like that show had this sort of like pre Simpsons thing where it was like a whole town, a whole world of characters, and the show had this sort of meta next level thing of you'd have these skits, then you'd have the actor that was in that skit played by this actor. So you'd have Joe Flaherty playing this newscaster. And then that newscaster was a character on the show. And then that newscaster played Count Floyd. So you had Count Floyd, which was like this vampire hosted these late night things played by this newscaster played by Joe Flaherty. And they constantly would do that. They would do a Chinatown parody called Polynesia town. And Johnny LaRue was the actor in that played by John Candy. But then Johnny LaRue would play this character behind the scenes and he would get in trouble episodes later for using a fancy crane shot for the end of the Polynesia Town skit and how dare he and he gets brought into the office and yelled. And it has this great kind of world of all these characters. And this episode of SNL kind of does that where it'll break, you know, from the skit and go to like the whale skit you just talked about breaks. And then there's like Downey and Dunn playing these sort of like critics or i couldn't quite tell what they, they were supposed were like, to be they were sort of like they felt like theater critics like, or uh, like uh, but they felt like hollywood types hollywood, like they were uh, fancily dressed sitting in like directors kind of chairs smoking and talking very fast and they were basically analyzing the scene and then kind of talking in general about coppola and it was just sort of like a weird little break from the skit and that's definitely something that SCTV would do all the time uh, to much better effect um, <laughs> but yeah I wonder if they were trying to aim for something like, they, they definitely aimed high for the ideas in this episode does it quite work I don't know I did for me I thought it was very funny and I wish I could have seen the whole thing um, me too with the Philip Glass did Coppola did Zotra produce Koenigsegg like is there is there a, is there a a tie to that is there a reason why that because that is a very weird musical guest like I don't know who's like I don't know exactly who this episode is for. Like, if you're tuning in and being like, I love Cheers, I love George Wynn, I want to watch him host SNL, and then your musical guest is this sort of, like, new classical music opera, <laughs> like, Philip Glass thing with scenes from this art film. One of the production companies of Koyanis Gatsi is American Zoetrope. There you go. So I wonder, like, if they approached Coppola for this idea, for this joke, and he was like, sure, can Philip Glass be your musical guest? Can we push the movie I produced, Coin Can the musical guest be part of this radical anti-comedy bit? And I guess the answer was, of course. Of course he can. And man, I really wish that like that Lorne Michaels or whoever could figure out the rights with all the music. Because like that's what's so great about the first five seasons of SNL. And when you go on Peacock... The first five seasons are totally uncut, like with the musical guests, because 15 or so years ago they put them on DVD and they worked out all the legalities, I guess. And then once you get to season six, the episodes become like 30 minutes long because <laughs> they have to take out the musical guests or if there was music in a skit or whatever. Um, but it would have been great to see, kind of get the full impact of this episode with Philip Glass. But in my mind, I can imagine it being extra strange and arty and weird and just sort of like a weird thing to tune into at like midnight on a Saturday. Now this this was a weird season because the the other guests like some of them made sense like uh Tony Danza, Griffin Dunn, Jay Leno. Does Griffin Dunn make sense? That's kind of weird. My guess it was for After Hours because it's 1986 and uh, for a movie like 3 3 years before. <laughs> 
Or after no, it was after 85, was, yeah. 86. No, that took around the right time. I guess for that, Terry Garr, but also Harry Dean Stanton hosts an episode of Whoa. Saturday Night Live, as does... Uh, I bet that's interesting. Let's see. Paul Rubens as Pee Wee Herman. That's hosts. exciting. Uh, let's see. Terry Garr. And my, my favorite, though, that I don't know if I'd want to see it, there's an episode hosted by Jimmy Breslin. Who's that? He's this like tough uh, New York City crime reporter. He's the person that the son of Sam sent all his letters to. <laughs> like he sent them specifically to Jimmy Breslin. And he's hosting Saturday Night Live. Yeah, like it's a very it'd be like if a, a columnist for the Austin American Statesman hosted a national show. <laughs> uh, Jimmy Breslin, he. Uh, he gives the opening and closing monologues to Summer of Sam, Spike Lee's Summer of Sam. Great movie. They make a lot of jokes about him on The Critic. He is a, an elementary school teacher as a joke, <laughs> and he says, like, uh, here's here's your headline, Bonnie's Bite Breslin. Breslin bleeds badly. <laughs> he was alliteration a lot. That was his, his thing. Well, yeah, how do you work the guy into ske- sketches? I, uh... Yeah. I would be interested to watch that. I'm assuming it's on Peacock. Yeah, what? Why not? <laughs> weird, very weird. <laughs> so weird. Uh, the final thing I want to mention that doesn't have anything to do with Coppola, but Dennis Miller is like the ultimate '80s guy, right? Like skinny tie, power sassy, main. power main, calling people like babe. Calling like other men, babe. He kind of reminds me of that guy in Die Hard who gets killed. You know, like yeah. you know, I'm talking about the, the the shitty like the friend or a fake friend of uh, John McClane's wife who's like, "Oh, I got you, booby." That's yeah. kind of who. Like, I'm sure that guy was maybe told to do a Dennis Miller. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know, <laughs> but that kind of like '80s, like kind of sleazy LA kind of. Yeah. <laughs> like he, if he wasn't a comedian, would have been like a stockbroker, you know, like or so. <laughs> Yeah, totally. Um, yeah, his joke, they after Coppola breaks in and gives him direction, he says like, oh, sorry, I got thrown off by taking an artistic direction from the guy that directed Rumblefish. And there's a laugh. I get the joke, but to me it doesn't work because Rumblefish is an artistic film. <laughs> if he had said like The Outsiders, like something more like plain looking that's an artistic film too i think at the time rumblefish was not looked at as maybe the same success that we look at now uh, artistic success so i think that definitely felt like a miller ad lib in that moment doesn't it feel kind of that's a little ad libby well definitely check it out i think even if it doesn't work for you it's it's an interest like you can watch it while you're eating breakfast like an interesting weird little anomaly this this episode this season 1986 was a strange time for Saturday Night Live in the world, I guess. Uh, <laughs> which leads us to the final thing we talk about, also from 1986. The Disneyland ride slash interactive movie, Captain EO. So do you want to describe the plot or kind of set up what Captain EO is? Because I feel like I yeah. set up the last one. And and like my Rip Van Winkle description, it will be far too long. <laughs> For a thing that was only 18 minutes long yeah. or whatever. So Captain EO is the story of Michael Jackson, who is the titular Captain EO. And he's got a ragtag group of uh, like Bad News Bears type people. 
there's uh, like major domo and minor domo who are robots and minor domo fits inside major domo there's a two-headed monster there's a uh like a weird like little elephant looking hooter alien hooter played by <laughs> tony cox tony cox <laughs> He's a, he, we can't get away from Tony yeah. talking about Tony Cox. Um, and they are sent on a mission to go to the supreme leader, uh, who is this monstrous-looking uh, person played by Angelica Houston, and she's she looks like the Borg Queen, very much like the Borg Queen. Like that must have been a ripoff of yeah, this. Yeah. Well, her whole layer. We'll get into this. I'm getting off track, but. He has to go there and take her uh, this gift. And the gift is, of course, music <laughs> and dance. And he uh, sings and dances, does his Michael Jackson thing. And he, when he dances, he like throws like optical uh, lights, like powers, and turns her uh, minions into dancers. And they all dance, and he brings light into the darkness and then she <laughs> turns into like a beautiful uh like goddess kind uh, like a classical greek kind of goddess and uh light is brought to you know the universe balance is restored <laughs> to the force uh the end you forgot to mention that dick sean plays the uh commander who gives him the mission to yes. bring the music the great dick sean just what the kids wanted um <laughs> So this was done as a ride. Did you ever go on the Captain EO ride? No. I was too young. To, it was gone by the time I It was gone by Disneyland. the time I went to Disney World. To, it was in Epcot at Disney World. And it had been replaced by Honey, I Shrunk the Audience. Which was a great ride. It was great. Um, <laughs> and I use the same idea where basically it's taking these sort of like William Castle type gimmicks. So I don't think the seats moved in Captain EO. But it was like wind would hit you or they would get you wet or the things would like the sound design would be more like feeling like it's all around you. Like this is pre like super surround sound, I think. And it was 3D. Yeah. Yeah. That was the big, yeah. big deal. Is 3D. And so it's supposed to be this sort of like new interactive type of cinema that you can only get at Disneyland. Um, yeah. So then uh, <laughs> it goes away. Michael Jackson dies. Then it comes back as the Captain EO tribute, and uh, that was like 2000, whenever he died, 2009, 2010, and uh, my wife and I went, we weren't married yet, but it was one of our first uh, trips together. We went to Disney World, went to Epcot, and decided not to go see Captain EO, because <laughs> there's other stuff to do. I'm not, I never was a really into michael jackson and so i wasn't gonna wait in a big line for uh <laughs> something i probably would think was just okay uh and then it closed again and so now it's it's gone from probably Disney. forever yes. now because of all the sad stories that people keep saying about michael jackson being a creep yeah so yeah. i think it's which was lost, uh, to, lost to the past led led to it being uh, led to the captain eo uh, ride or experience or whatever kind of being phased out uh, in the 90s. I wonder if they still have the Honey, I Shrunk the Kids one because that was awesome. That, that, it's been replaced with a Pixar short film oh, festival. Oh, man. That's not as fun. 
is seeing Rick Moranis and because there's a part where it makes you feel like a shrink. And yeah. it, was like, it was a crazy, that was a crazy ride. I loved that ride. Yeah, um, there's like a replicator and uh, mice get replicated and they run through the audience mm -hmm. and like you little, feel it on your feet. Yeah, you feel it on your feet like there's mice. So good. But anyways, let's go back to Captain EO. So this this is definitely I think the first maybe blip for me in the eighties, the Coppola eighties. I don't hate this movie. It's very enjoyable, but I feel this is the first one that really feels like done for money only <laughs> like there's not there's very little within this that feels coppola to me and it feels like he just made a george lucas movie which makes sense because george lucas co-wrote this and produced it and just like with empire strikes back and return of the jedi didn't direct it but had someone fill in for him and basically just make a george lucas movie like this doesn't have the artisticness of like a Rip Van Winkle or even the odd, you know, uniqueness of that SNL episode we just talked about. Like it just feels very straightforward and which is too bad. I was kind of hoping to like, I do like it. I will say like, I find it entertaining. It is fun to watch. It is a definite like interesting little time capsule, but it just does, but it isn't as good as it could have been. And this being the, only Coppola sci-fi movie since that weird re-edit of that thing that he battled beyond the sun or whatever it was called that we watched. Yeah. Uh, this is the only science fiction we really get from him ever. Uh, you know, yes. it's, and it just feels a hundred percent, just some star Wars knockoff. Like it is just like it down is. to like the ships feel like Star Wars ships that Hooter character I think is the same puppet from Jabba's Palace that plays the he keyboards. Totally he totally like plays the keyboards Jabba's in this one Palace. too. Like there's a, uh, at the same time, Lucas was developing Star Tours with Disney, which is a Star Wars ride. Like so, it's weird to have these at the same time. At the same time, and there's a part in Captain EO where they're like they're going down into the city, the trench thing, the tre and yeah. they go down into the trench of. The Death Star, which you do in Star, Star Tours, Tours. <laughs> and it looks exactly the same. But in Star Tours, is a ride, so you're in a row of seats that's on a yeah. gimbal shifting yeah. around. Great, um, great ride. It's weird. It's almost like he was offered Captain EO, and he's like, ah, or like Star Tours, but like I don't want to put Michael Jackson in the Star Wars thing. How about we do two? Yeah, I'll get my friend Francis in to do the. He's good with musicals and dance numbers. Like, have him do that, and I'll do Star Tours. I don't know if George Lucas directed Star Tours. I don't think he did. But, like, this definitely, Captain EO has the stench of Lucasfilm all yeah. over it. I, uh, so I watched <laughs> this. Uh, there's a YouTube show called Defunct Land that's about uh, amusement park rides that no longer exist. And there's an episode on Captain EO which is really insightful and entertaining and I recommend everyone watch it and then we'll recommend something else everyone should watch on YouTube a little bit later. Uh, <laughs> but this goes, uh, the history of this is Michael Eisner and Jeffrey Katzenberg were the head of Paramount Pictures and Disney in the 80s was tanking and like not, not doing well and that's how like Coppola was able to have Mickey Mouse cartoons and a Mickey Mouse reference in The Outsiders because Disney, like, needed the money, so they licensed <laughs> out their stuff. Uh, so they're brought in to revamp Disney everything. 
and Michael Eisner is the CEO and Jeffrey Katzenberg is in charge of movies and so Katzenberg starts George Lucas is like the biggest thing in movies so he works with Lucas to develop star tours and he wants Lucas to come up with like amusement park rides Michael Jackson had just done not just done but he had done Thriller yeah and he wanted to do something else like that but he wanted to work with Disney because he loved Disney and so that's how Michael Eisner got involved and also Michael Eisner's kid thought Disney was lame and here's what you should do, Dad. And so that's do Michael Jackson. Do something Michael Jackson, something like hip. You know? <laughs> and so they like kind of put these two then together. Let's get Michael. Let's get George Lucas to work on something with Michael Jackson uh, to develop for Disneyland. And they came up with a few weird ideas, like there'd be a movie about uh, the Michael Jackson sneaks into disney world into disneyland after dark oh, it's a horror movie and already the, uh, and like the characters and rides like come to life and he has a little adventure or <laughs> something like mike uh, michael jackson would be peter pan basically and like ah, that's <laughs> michael jackson around still a bunch get of, uncomfortable around a bunch Never of kids like, oh, okay <laughs> No, but the ride was already set to be in Tomorrowland, mm. so it had to be sci-fi space. Got it. So, like, okay, well, you bring, instead of bringing, like, joy to children, you bring music to an alien queen. <laughs> okay. And they throw it together. Michael Jackson only wants to work with Steven Spielberg or George Lucas. <laughs> Steven Spielberg is making color purple. So George Lucas says, like, I'll get my friend. Francis Ford Coppola to do this because he's needs the money <laughs> and at this point and it like lends this prestige to the ride uh who's it John Landis did Thriller mm-hmm. so like they you know Michael Jackson's continuing with like we're working with high profile directors for his elaborate music videos and everyone thought everyone at Disney thought well George Lucas is going to be in charge of this so he's going to be involved but this is the 80s where George Lucas is now very comfortably sinking back into the George Lucas we know and are annoyed by today. <laughs> like, I have an idea. You write it. You direct it. And um, I'm just going to sit back here. Okay? All right. Good. Good. Put my name on it. And so, yeah, he was not involved. Coppola was very involved. Of course he was because Coppola could never be like a George Lucas. No, he could never so just sit back he and brings let on, something of happen. course he brings Vittorio Storaro to like he's not the official cinematographer but he is visual lighting and photographic consultant <laughs> so he basically sat next to the cinematographer and said this is yeah. what you're doing and because Disney had their own they had their Imagineers yeah George Lucas had ILM and George Lucas was bringing in ILM people pissing off the Imagineers and so you had like double staff of everything this became the most expensive movie ever made for its length it was like a million and four 1.4 million dollars per minute of film yeah that's expensive and it's yeah it's okay like I mean I would probably enjoy it in person in the ride as like a break you know, like, I've been waiting outside, like, doing rides, rides, here's something where I get to sit down. 
Um, and the dance numbers, like Michael Jackson dance numbers, they're elaborate and yeah. those are good. And Coppola films them wide, you know, because mm-hmm. there's like 50 people all doing the dance. Uh, Michael Jackson's doing a lot of like crotch thrusting. Yeah, it's just sort which, of like getting into his big crotch thrusting. Phase. Yeah, like, which no like, one was prepared for him to be doing, and he does it so much that they just had to out. leave it in. <laughs> but you're right; it does feel like nothing very Coppola about this. This is yeah. It, it's it's very much he's doing. Uh, he just showed up and made a George Lucas type like movie. Yeah. So he did, yeah. It's like he's doing like a like a Richard Marquand for Return of the Jedi, just sort of showing up, making George Lucas's vision happen. Like this isn't you know Ron Howard doing Willow, doing like a Ron Howard version. This is just Coppola totally disappearing and just making a straightforward, in my mind, in my opinion, a George Lucas movie. Like this, is, if you just told me George Lucas made this, I'd be like, sure, or hey, some nobody. I'm like, yeah, it just doesn't feel. Coppola like I guess the dance numbers that's something he enjoys doing in movies we've seen but there's nobody really in the cast that was ever in a Coppola movie like Angelica Houston wasn't even in a Coppola movie it was supposed (laughs) to be originally supposed to be Shelley Duvall huh but she did not want to be in so much makeup like she knew that would take a lot of that makes sense a lot of time and so she didn't want to spend that much time still tied being in like, made up. this is pre the fairy tale theater so him and Shelley Duvall having a little trying to figure out a way to work yeah i think they made crossing. the better choice of doing a fairy tale theater yeah. for this, uh, mo- this movie was also written co-written so it's coppola lucas and rusty lemorand whose only credit before this was he wrote Electric Dreams, that weird computer romantic comedy uh, from the early 80s. Uh, who knows how much of this he actually wrote. Uh, it just, yeah, this feels very much like the George Lucas of Return of the Jedi. It's a lot of, like, little furry dudes and people talking in little voices and, like, just, like, little cute animals. <laughs> like, very Jabba's palace. Uh, yeah, as we mentioned, Hooter, I think, is that puppet from the Jabba's band. If not, it's, like... 99% the same. Uh, yeah, there's a thing that looks kind of like the Death Star. It's just like, it just all feels like a true cash grab for Coppola. But good for him. Take Disney's money. Go crazy. Like, if you're going to have to pay off debt, then, like, you have Disney pay you. Like, I'm sure he got paid very well for this. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And, <laughs> and at this point in his career, Coppola was. Like he was wanting to experiment, you know. He had, uh, he had the debt. He had done like the Cotton Club, which, you know, not his project, but a job for hire, which he like put his stamp on in a way. Uh, but you could tell he was just wanting to like take uh, these artistic chances. Like, yeah, I'll direct a theme park. Park park ride ride for ride. My friend George. See what Why it's not? like. I'll direct a TV episode. Yeah, I'll be on Saturday Night Live <laughs> as a director. Just like see how it goes. Um, and he was interested in doing in trying out the new like camera technology that they uh, this is like seventy millimeter three D stuff that Kodak had specially invented, and the theater was specially uh, rebuilt to accommodate the film yeah this sounds like a dream job for someone like him who wanted his own studio and his you know like 
you have a theater made specifically for this movie you're directing. Like that is definitely appealing to someone like Coppola. And he's in his late 40s by this point, so it's like he's comfortable. He's already made movies that people have considered classics, and he's made movies that people have hated. And why not just do these weird, you know, fairy tale theater and an SNL and a Disney ride and, yeah, make thousands of dollars from them and pay off some of your debt? And why not? Um, <laughs> my wife said she saw this when it came out, around the time it came out. And she said it was great. She said that the 3D was the best she'd ever seen. And it was it really felt like it was there, like in the theater around you. And it was just like one of the great cinematic uh, movie-going experiences. <laughs> so I wish I could have gone to see it. But, you know, I think it's just not. Maybe someone can bring it back somehow. I don't know how that would ever happen. Maybe like a VR, Captain EO VR. <laughs> it's uh, it's weird. And, yeah, it's, it's weird because, like, this is right before Michael Jackson did bad. Because I think that was like 87, 88. Does that seem right? Like Moonwalker and bad. And so he got much better, I think. out of He got out of Captain EO. And like the bad video directed by Scorsese is like one of the great music videos. So like this is kind of that. I think the sad thing about this for Jackson and for Coppola is like it's sandwiched between Thriller and Bad, which are two like the great music videos for anybody. And in the middle, you have this sort of like mediocre, you know, phony Star Wars video where he's bringing magical music to people. It's just kind of silly, and it doesn't really, it doesn't really hold up, or maybe never held up. Uh, but it's interesting. The, I mean, the special effects are great. Like it looks great. Yeah, they hold uh, up as as well as anything from the '80s with like the optical effects. He throws light at people. Yeah, I mean, it looks fake, but yeah, it looks fine. It looks like a million and a half a minute, I believe it. <laughs> but to me, the most exciting thing to come out of the existence of Captain EO is this television special that was, I'm assuming, on ABC. I don't know if they were tied in with Disney in the 80s then. But just celebrating the opening of the ride of Captain EO. Like, they had a whole hour-long special just to let America know that this ride exists and how it's the greatest thing in American history, <laughs> basically. is how they. And if you are not from the 80s and know nothing about it, or if you are from the 80s and you miss it dearly, this is maybe the most 80s time capsule caught on video slash film ever, ever. <laughs> Like, I, it's crazy. <laughs> the, I died. <laughs> I died while watching this. It is so 80s. It is so much 80s all crammed into an hour, like 40 minutes. And it's like it's, like when you watch something like Hot Tub Time Machine and you're like, oh, they're like exaggerating. It's not how it really is. Like, no. But watch Actually, it was, it was like that. <laughs> This Disneyland, this special, it's like a police academy a movie, like, escaped and became real. <laughs> it's it's insane, because, like, I, I, I was watching this, and, like, it kind of starts with, like, okay, it's hosted by Patrick Duffy and Justine Bateman. You're like, okay, that's very 80s. This is, like, these are the people from TV in the mid-80s. Like, she was uh, Family Ties. He was Dallas, I think? Yeah, Dallas. This is pre-step-by-step. Step. Uh, so this is still Dallas-era Patrick Duffy. 
and they're hosting this Disneyland thing, and there's going to be a there's, there's they're, they're promising us big musical acts, and you're like, I wonder if Michael Jackson's going to be one of them, and they're promising us big stars, and it starts to roll along, and you're like, okay, this is sort of like. There's Ed Begley Jr. again. Yeah, there, there's so like a parade, get, like, a procession and, of the celebrities. And Yakov Shmirnov, and you're like, oh, this is sort of like the who's who of sort of like C minus 80s. But then you get O.J. Simpson. You get Angelica Houston is there with Jack Nicholson. Who is not mentioned. He's not mentioned ever. It's like, here's Angelica Houston and date. <laughs> It's like that's Jack Nicholson. He's in it a lot. There's even a part where he like says something. Like he's behind. Like they're interviewing her, and he's just like in the background, like smirking. And he kind of says something. You can like, yeah. And you can't quite tell. He's just kind of being some wise guy. But you can see even <laughs> like the carriage they're in because they are in a carriage has his name on it. It says Jack Nicholson. <laughs> Jack Nicholson, but they don't mention it. Everyone else yeah. is in like uh like Stanley Steamer type cars <laughs> coming down Main Street USA. But don't worry, they mentioned Nell Carter from <laughs> Give Me a Break. Uh the Pet Shop Boys. One of the hottest acts, the, <laughs> the Pet, Pet Shop, Shop Boys. Boys. Charles Bronson is <laughs> shows up. You're like what is like it seems like they it invited everybody and everyone showed up, even the people they weren't expecting. Like, oh, wait, Charles Bronson's actually here for the parade for Captain Okay, Dolph Lundgren shows up. It's it's crazy. Esther it's, Williams. Esther Williams, the great Esther Williams. Oh, and one thing to mention, when Jack Nichols and Angelica used to show up, they mentioned that they're making a Prizzy's Honor sequel, which clearly that never happened. <laughs> I don't know if it's because John Houston died the year after this. Maybe that's why. But there's a mention of a lot. So I wonder if there's a script out there that what's make that movie people. They ever, they're still alive. Yeah. The Prizzy's on a sequel. Uh, so yeah, the parade is just mind blowing. Cause like you expect a Yakov Smirnoff. You do not expect Jack Nicholson and Charles Bronson. That's nuts. And then they slowly roll out. And this is all between like them, like slowly celebrating the ride. So it's a lot of like, Here's a bit where we're showing you like the sketch drawings and here's like the making of and here's George Lucas sitting in the theater and they're pretending to ask him about like the technical like he's as if he was there. While yeah, him and it. Michael Eisner. And like, hey, George, how's it going in here? And, just, like, and George Lucas can't tell for a second that it's real because he's terrible at acting. George Lucas has no beard. <laughs> that is weird. Yeah, he's totally beardless. And he's already becoming kind of jowly. Yeah. Um. So it's an odd look, and he does not really look like himself. He doesn't look comfortable on camera at all. He doesn't seem like he wants to be talking. Like, he seems really nervous. Coppola comes comes in with his entire family in, like, a carriage. Coppola's very excited. He's very Coppola, very much just like, oh, we did this. I mean, he like, feels like a little kid, you know, very excited to talk about all the technical things and the making of – and it goes into this great, actually interesting making of. But then they slowly roll out the musical acts. And it really is like a who's who of like the softest rock that could have existed in 1986. Like none of these bands I would consider to be hip, except for Robert Palmer. Like he's the only one that like was at the time, I guess, popular and cool doing Addicted to Love on stage. But then you have post-Go-Go's Belinda Carlisle doing... Some song that nobody remembers. You have mid '80s era Moody Blues doing just some terrible garbage, <laughs> and then you have Starship. And what's funny about all these acts is it, and I don't know if they actually 
did this or what, but it shows them doing like the last 10 seconds of some hit song you remember, like of them being like, we built this city or whatever. And then it goes into some other or, or it goes into the last 10 seconds of some song you never heard of. And then it goes into the hit in my mind. They never played that first song. It's Mm -hmm. just them standing there. They lip sync for 10 seconds. And then it goes into this longer. I don't remember who, if it was Belinda Carlisle, but someone's song like, fades out (laughs) like it's like the way the partridge families or brady bunch like they're when they sang songs on stage live it it would fade out yeah and guess what guys you know who doesn't show up to this at all michael jackson (laughs) he is not in the parade he does not play a song he doesn't cut a ribbon he doesn't give a speech he is not in the special whatsoever not at all. Yeah. <laughs> Couldn't be bothered to it's show all up. Built around do his own thing. All built around this person. Yeah, like this person has has <laughs> given us this experience, this three D sci fi experience, <laughs> and they are not there. Not at all. <laughs> um, and also, you, there's a definite noticeable lack of Steven Spielberg's not there at all. Like these are his two his best friends, you know, supposedly. And, but he's too busy making an actual movie, Color Purple, to be bothered. <laughs> Though I believe, doesn't Whoopi Goldberg show up to this? Isn't she there? I think so. I think so. Or maybe I just assume she is because she is at all these Because everyone things. else is there. Because everyone else. Like, why isn't Mr. T there or Pee Wee Herman? Like, it seems like they should be. Judge Reinhold is there. Judge Reinhold's there. Like, uh, it, just, it's, it just keeps coming. It keeps rolling out. The stars keep coming. It's amazing. Bruce Jenner. Now, yep. now Caitlin, but yep. uh, you know, the... Uh, what it says on screen is Bruce Jenner, and you're like, like oh, like which of the Kardashians is he holding? Uh, you do see uh, John Ritter's there with Jason Ritter. Yeah, okay. So you so... see little Jason Ritter there. So if you ever meet Jason Ritter, ask him how the Captain EO premiere parade was because that's clearly him. <laughs> the the fashion is insane, like the mullets everywhere. Like everyone had like. <laughs> crazy hair mullets it seems like everyone in the 80s in this special so the 80s like they had their hair like mechanically lowered down onto them the way that darth (laughs) vader gets his helmet lowered down onto him and like the someone in robert palmer's band has their like purple leopard print pants tucked into their socks Let's not bring that back, please. There's so many keytars. Yeah. So many keytars. Yeah. More. You only need one in a band. Nothing about O.J. Simpson dates well <laughs> at all after Robert Palmer sings Addicted to Love. Like, cut to all the celebrities reacting and cut to O.J. Simpson saying, like, I guess we're all addicted to love. Like, ugh. <laughs> oh, God, O.J. Simpson. Why? <laughs> it's amazing. It's Again, it's on YouTube. Please check it out. It is totally Maybe the best thing that you can watch from anything we recommend because it's so crazy and entertaining. Like that is a good Friday night. It starts out like a like a joke when they're like, "Oh, like we've like everyone's here, like all the stars are out," and it's like uh, Yakov Smirnoff and like one of the hottest acts, the Pet Shop Boys, <laughs> and then it gets weird, like yeah. Dolph Lundgren, Esther Williams. <laughs> 
I think this is a perfect like second bottle of wine, 10 p.m. Friday night. Put this on if you're with a group of people. If you're doing that again, it'll definitely make the party lively. I feel like you can't not you know watch this whole thing and be excited about it. It's just it's just insane. <laughs> and do they still or did they ever again do a special about a ride? Like when the Avatar World opened, was there a TV special about that? Or not that I'm aware of. And if it was, nothing to this extravagance. No, I... maybe like a half hour thing that airs on the Disney. Channel. Like they treat this like it's the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade. Yes, like people it really... are coming down Main Street USA <laughs> in Model Ts. <laughs> And there's a lot of people there, and it's like a beautiful Southern California day. And it's like, these are all very famous people. It's like, call up <laughs> everyone that's famous and ask them if they want to bring their kids to Disney and World. And they all did. <laughs> I hope Charles Bronson had a great time. I hope he was just like, that was one of the greatest rides I've ever been on. <laughs> so crazy. Yeah, it's nuts. Uh, there was a real making of of Captain EO. I didn't watch it because I was like, you can't no, top. nothing. <laughs> I mistakenly didn't watch that first. I watched this being like, I'll just watch this silly thing. And then and I was like, well, this covers the making of and is so much more. So I don't need to watch a 40-minute just making of. Um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> In a perfect world, there's a great Blu-ray release of like Captain EO with this on as an extra feature. Man. The main feature. The, yeah, this that is be the, the main, main feature. feature. And if Captain EO be like the, the bonus. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Captain EO is weird. Like it apparently uh it only played like on MTV once in the mid nineties. Hmm. It was released on like a random Michael Jackson album in the mid two thousands. Oh, the song? Yeah, the uh, the the music from Captain EO. Which... And the video is not on any of the Michael Jackson like history DVDs or whatever those were called. Yeah, I I mean it has to be like rights with Disney, Disney. and whatnot. Yeah. And like that's I guess that's why this kind of gets forgotten. Like Thriller is its own thing and Bad is its own thing. Thriller more so. But Captain EO is not a Coppola film it's not even really a michael jackson film it's a disney yeah. ride theater 3d 4d experience and once that goes away like you know you kind of forget about i mean i don't forget about honey i shrunk the audience but yeah. you know it disappears from the consciousness it's funny as litigious as disney is there's like 20 versions of this on youtube like clearly they just like don't care <laughs> they're just like don't they just like whatever you can have that on and I don't know how it exists. Like I don't know if it was someone was able to somehow get a copy from Disneyland, or this was from when it was on MTV. Because it's not in like because it's not in, in, in that weird like three D without the three D glasses. No, it's like with it's, the it's a real it's, movie. Yeah, and it looks pretty good. Like the version I watched on YouTube isn't hor- horrible condition. Like it looks great. So I don't know. Like I think Disney just lets it exist with this special. They're just like sure. We'll take down anything else, but that we won't take down that. We won't take down Fluffy Dogs. Their weird uh, Care Bears ripoff that they did. Also <laughs> worth watching if anyone should watch Fluffy Dogs. Um, <laughs> yeah. So I I wonder if we'll get. I think this has got to be the weirdest pocket of Coppola. I don't think we're gonna get this weird again. Like this, these three four things, is just a strange place to be in his filmography. Like after we just did. Uh, Peggy Sue Got Married, which was like a legit great movie. 
Oscar nominated movie and then we have this weird pocket and now we're gonna go back into like legitimate cinema again uh, our next episode is gonna be Gardens of Stone which I've never seen neither have uh, I looks more like just as drama it's uh, him with James Caan again which I'm excited about so and it's kind of back to yeah him making real movies again I mean not that these aren't real movies but Stuff that feels feature more length. like feature length with maybe a vis- like a strong vision behind it. Um, yeah, and we're kind of getting into late 80s now, so we're, we're getting kind of at the end of this sort of decade that people consider to be his worst. Uh, so far, not so bad, except for maybe Captain EO. But I yeah. still like Captain EO. <laughs> Just not as good as anything else we've watched. No, and if you watch it with the... Making of thing with the making parade of stuff, and then yeah, watch the um the defunct land history of Captain EO. That's a great night, which is its own craziness. Um, like yeah, with Michael Eisner wanting to be involved, and then it's funny now because we know how George Lucas is. Like he's Lazy. hands off. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> hands off. Like okay, whatever. He runs movies like he's like a CEO or something. He's just like the guy at the top who yeah. just sort of you know has a vision and makes other people do the work. And then, uh, but then he has like for like, uh, no, yeah, I'm not gonna actually direct this. I'm gonna get my friend to do it. <laughs> your your friend, yeah, my friend uh, Francis Ford Coppola. Like, oh, well, well, okay then, <laughs> that's fine. Yeah, I wonder if they'd ask their other friends, like, what would the Brian De Palma Captain EO be like, or the John Milius, uh, the John Milius Captain EO would be much more violent, uh, the Brian De Palma would be much more sexy, uh, that would have been interesting. Oh god, a Brian De Palma movie in 3D. <laughs> it could still happen, he's still around. Yeah. yeah, who knows what a body double ride would be like, That who knows what would be flying at you in the theater there, that's... <laughs> God, no. Oh, but then you would get to live through the Frankie Goes to Hollywood video. <laughs> Which has been my dream <laughs> always. Um, yeah, no, it's definitely, yeah, it's nice. It's it's also just like this is a nice little moment in like that constant uh, friendship between George and uh, Francis that we talk about in our episodes. This constant. Uh, this is the first time yeah. they're like working together professionally since. Apocalypse um, Now, kind of. Yeah. yeah, it's weird that like this is what brought them together to, again in a actual collaboration. But it definitely doesn't feel like exactly a collaboration. Maybe it was, but it just the finished product feels a hundred percent grade A Lucas. Yeah. <laughs> and Coppola never made anything like this again. Like, there's talk of him doing a thing called Robo Apocalypse or whatever. Megalopolis. Megalopolis. Okay. And that's going to be some big, you know, special effectsy thing if he ever makes it. But like, he never really went down this kind of Hollywood path again, which is great. Like, it's and if you're going to do it, why not? Like, it's kind of the perfect way he did it. If like it's a 20 minute ride that now no longer exists, so no one can even even really watch it to like tell you whether it's good or bad, unless you can want to seek it out, you know, on YouTube. So he has like kind of the perfect, quote unquote, sellout movie in a way, you know. Sure. Because it doesn't really count. Like, people don't really ever talk about this in his filmography or count it. Like, no one is like, oh, Captain EO is bad, but The Godfather is great. Like, this movie's just kind of like, well, that's a ride. It doesn't really count as the other things. Like, like fairy tale theater counts more than Captain EO. Uh, yeah, it's just interesting. But definitely 
check out all three of these things and the and the parade. It's it's all very good and interesting. Yeah, I and all them, easy to find. I watched the them all in one night. Yeah, they're all easy to find. Weird night, but a fun night. Uh, <laughs> would recommend. Great. Yep. So uh, next time, back to the world of serious drama films with a a, uh, a stroll through gardens of stone. I'm excited with James Connolly.